Matthew 6, verses 7 through 14. Jesus said, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, is how that would finish if it was actually in the verse. (laughs) I heard you guys saying it, and I started saying it myself, yeah. The passage, passage continues, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. This is God's word. You may be seated. It was really funny. I didn't anticipate this. I probably should have. Hearing everybody recite the Lord's Prayer, a number of you grew up with the King James Version, which finishes, for thine is the kingdom and the glory forever. Amen. Uh, That actually, so the ESV that we're reading did not, does not have that because what happened, there's an Old Testament verse that had been added at some point. So it's not wrong. It's all scripture, but our oldest manuscripts don't have that right there. It's only in the Old Testament, so that's why the ESV does not have that. Uh, But that's a long way of saying that this morning, of course, we've been walking through uh, Jesus's Sermon on the Mount. We looked at the first 18 verses of chapter 6 last week, and this week we're going back and we're just laser, we're having a laser focus on the Lord's Prayer. So the Lord's Prayer, most scholars think it is the most prayed prayer in the history of the human race. Probably no prayer has been prayed more than this. Uh, Most scholars would say these are the most recognizable words in the English language. It is a hugely important part of the history of our people, um, and it's hugely important to understand well. Because inside the churches, maybe outside of parenting, I don't know that there's there's a part of our Christian lives where there is more confusion and often more guilt than prayer. You know, we, we all know that we can pray more. We all know that we can pray better. Um, we come on hard times and, and we can often wonder, had I prayed differently, would things be going differently in my life today? About 10 years ago, when my wife was going through chemotherapy, I had a very, honestly, a well-intentioned young man sitting across the table from me at Starbucks. And he told me that we were going through what we were going through because it was our fault, because we did not pray enough. Or if we did pray, we didn't pray with enough faith. That's why Angela had cancer, according to him. And so honestly, my first reaction was to fly over that table and punch him. But I I won't lie to you. There was a moment where I wondered, could that be true? If, If there is If I had been better about praying for my wife, would things be better at this moment? And then on the whole other end of the spectrum, we all have these prayers that we've prayed and it didn't happen. So you remember the the $1.5 billion lottery ticket from, from, I think it was like the beginning of last fall. The guy who won that, the single winner of the $1.5 billion claimed that prize this week. And I remember it 
Don't judge me. Because that was the one and only lottery ticket I have purchased in the past 20 years. And you better believe I prayed. I said, God, I'm the ideal winner here. I I mean, local schools will be coming to Orlando Grace to borrow our facilities. RTS would not... I don't think they'd have to charge tuition for a single student ever again if I win this thing. I would do, I could, I think I could single-handedly end homelessness on Orlando. Really, is there a better candidate out there? I can buy FSU some good football players. (laughs) I didn't, I didn't pray that, but I did pray. And of course, God in his wisdom decided there was a better candidate for that prize out there. But we pray things that at the very least, we wonder why we didn't get what we asked for. And at worst, we wonder if prayer even works. There is confusion, there is doubt, there's guilt, there are questions in this arena of prayer. So this passage that we have on the Lord's Prayer is hugely important because Jesus gives us a scaffolding to be able to understand how it is that we should pray as Christians. So I want to look at this passage and I want to answer two very simple questions. How it is or why it is that we can pray and how it is that we should pray. So why can we pray and how should we pray? That's what this passage teaches us. So first, why we can pray. The whole reason that we can pray comes down to two words in this prayer. Our Father. The whole reason that we can pray about anything comes down to these two words, our Father, our Father who is in heaven. So this prayer actually in most of the world, it isn't known as the Lord's Prayer, it's known as our Father. A pastor might say, all right, we're gonna gonna pray the our Father right now. And the people who call the prayer the our Father, they understand how significant it is that, that these words are the beginning of the way that Jesus prayed because this would have been truly shocking to, to Jesus' audience. You don't address God as our Father. Nowhere in the Bible does anybody address God as an individual calling him Father in the way that Jesus does. I mean, God is holy. God is righteous. God is far more everything good than we will ever be. So because of who God is, we should revere him. We should lift him up. You don't call God Father because that communicates a level of intimacy that is not right according to Jesus' audience. I was thinking this week, like what what would be the closest we could come in our culture? So maybe if, if you met the Queen of England, all right, And the first thing you did is give her a high five or a fist bump. Maybe grab her and give her close. I don't know. I'm thinking, what would be the most dishonoring way to approach the queen? And however that feels, multiply that by 10 million. And I think we get somewhere close to the shocking nature of how Jesus is instructing all of us to address a holy, perfect, and righteous God, our Father. And some people have thought, well, it's okay for Jesus to call God Father, but, but not us. That, that's what's going on here, which that can't at all be what's going on because Jesus is teaching them, pray, our Father. And then you have passages like John 1, where John says, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, got what? He gave the right to become children of God. 
children who can call him our father. Paul in Galatians says, and because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying what? Abba, father. The reason we can approach God is because he has made us his children and children have some unique blessings. And I think the top two blessings that, that children have to a father are love and access. If we're children, we're loved and we have access. My children have access to me in a way that nobody else does. So Angela and I, for all of our 14 years in being married, we have slept on one mattress, a queen mattress that she got when she went off to college. And when we moved down here, we decided we were going to upgrade and we got a king bed. And I was under the impression that this was going to allow us to spread out a little bit. But it, it doesn't. It just ensures there's a third person in the bed with us. Every morning, I wake up, and there's another kid right there in between us. And do you know what I do when I wake up in the morning, and I look, and there's a child in between my wife and me? I smile. I smile. Because that child has that kind of access to me. Now, if I woke up in the morning and I saw one of you in my bed in between Angela and me, there would be a very different reaction because you do not have that kind of access to me. You are not my child. But this is the level of access that Jesus is communicating when he says that we should address God as our father. So you can see why it would be shocking. You know, there are these precious ages. I think it's probably somewhere between two and six where where a child thinks his or her father can do anything. I've got one child left in this age range. The others are starting to wonder if I can do anything. <laughs> but you really think your dad can do anything. And since this morning my in-laws are here and my sister-in-law, there's a story that I've always loved when she was in this age range. She had a balloon. Her name is Kari. Uh, she had a balloon, and the balloon popped, and her mom said, I'm so sorry, are you okay with your balloon being popped? And she, without a pause, she said, it's fine, dad will fix it. <laughs> she believed that much that her dad could do everything. And again, this is the way that Jesus is wanting us to approach the Father. This is the way he wants us to understand the level we are loved and cherished and accepted in Jesus Christ. And God the Father, he isn't any run-of-the-mill dad. <laughs> He, he makes Jack Pearson from This Is Us look like an amateur, all right? This, God the Father is more loving. He is more patient. He is more kind. He is more gracious than any earthly example that we have. And not only that, look at verse 8. <laughs> For your father knows what you need before you ask him. So not only is he more of every great, great quality that earthly fathers have. In addition to that, he knows our needs before we even ask. So we don't have to be scared to go and tell him something and ask him something because he is telling us he already knows before we even say it. So here's the question that we need to ask, though, to really understand what's going on. How is it, why is it that we can call God Father? All right, I, I want to answer that by, by asking a different question, and I'll flesh it out this way. Why is it that the Lord's Prayer does not end in Jesus' name? You ever think about that? I mean, the most common thing that we do in all our prayers is not in the most important passage that we have on prayer. Why is it that he doesn't end in Jesus' name? And the answer is because it's assumed in the text. The only reason that we can call God Father is Jesus. 
Jesus is the only true son. Jesus, in coming to this earth, he gave us his status. He gave us the status of true sons. He came down here and took on the status of criminal on the cross so that we could gain the status of true children. Jesus, the true son, came and switched places with us. And he gave us the blessing of being children. And we call this great doctrine the doctrine of adoption. My community group is going through Knowing God right now by J.I. Packer. And Packer says that justification is the fundamental blessing of God, but adoption is the highest blessing of God. And I know a number of families that they, they have both biological and adopted children. And sometimes you can tell which are which because of the color of their skin and the color of the skin of the, the parents. But when you watch the family interact, you quickly realize there's no difference in the eyes of the parents. They are every bit as loved, regardless of the color of the skin, regardless of who gave birth to them. They are every bit their children. And whenever we see adopted children in a loving home, that is a picture to us of the way that God loves us in Jesus Christ. We are adopted as true children. That's why we can pray because we were adopted and we were given love and access. So the question then, now that we know why we have access, why we can pray, is how do we use that access? How is it that we should pray? And that is the rest of our passage. So Jesus tells us how we should pray. He gives us two things we shouldn't do and then two things we should do. And the two things we shouldn't do first, he said you should not pray hypocritically. And this was the whole sermon last week. So I'm not even going to touch on it. If you weren't here, you can go listen, watch, or read that online. So he tells us we shouldn't pray hypocritically. But then secondly, he says we should not pray using empty phrases. Look at verse 7. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. So whatever it is that the Gentiles were doing, (laughs) we're not to do that. And and it's a bit confusing because, as I understand it, this Greek word, batalogeto, this is the only place we have it, like anywhere, even outside the Bible. So it's all your versions are going to translate it fairly differently. And and I think they're all fundamentally fine. But I, I think that William Tyndale and then following the NIV, following William Tyndale, I think they nailed it when they used the word babble. Because I'm convinced that batalogeto is onomatopoeia. You remember onomatopoeia? It's like where, where you give something a word based on how it sounds. We get words like bash, smash, belch. We, we gave these words because of how the thing sounds. Uh, another example of onomatopoeia would be hocus pocus. Because the, in the 17th century, people would hear Latin prayers. They didn't know Latin. And so when the priest would bless the elements, he would say something that the people interpreted as hocus pocus. He does the hocus pocus and the elements are the blood and, and, and the bread. And that's how that came about. That's another example of onomatopoeia. And that, I think, is exactly what's going here. They heard the Gentiles praying and they developed a word to sound like it. And that's why we have, in some of our translations, this word babble. When Angela and I, uh, early, early in our marriage, when we were fairly new to the country of Italy, uh, there was a church we joined. They loved us so well. They were great people, but they were highly charismatic, highly charismatic. And uh, 
And I remember when my, my Italian got good enough that, that I could understand most of what's going on, and I realized all these prayers are not Italian. <laughs> and that could have been Batalaghetto. Um, but practically for us, we have to ask, what, what does this mean? How does this inform the way that we pray? Kevin DeYoung says that our prayers, they can't be all lips, no mind, and no heart. I, I think that really sums up what Jesus is saying. Our prayers, they can't be all lips, no mind, and no heart. Because there's this idea in the world, it's not limited to Christianity, that if we have the right formula, if we know the right pray to, prayer to pray, and we do it enough times, then that's like this magical formula that merits God's blessing. One prayer done the same way many times, hocus pocus, there it is. That's not the way that Jesus is teaching us to pray. And I think the King James would, would also be onto something when they, they translate it as vain repetition. So the mind's not engaged, the heart's not engaged. What Jesus is saying is that when we pray, our prayers need to be thoughtful and they need to be heartfelt. That's very important to what Jesus is saying and how we're not to pray. So it does beg the question, though, all right, if we're not to have these little rote prayers that we go through, isn't that exactly what Jesus is giving us in the Lord's Prayer, <laughs> is a rote prayer to go through? And the answer is absolutely no. This isn't meant to be a rote prayer that we repeat exactly as it is to earn a blessing. Jesus is teaching us how it is that we pray. He's giving us cat categories to pray through. That's why I said... The Lord's Prayer is a type of scaffolding to our prayer. It's not limited to this. This is like the springboard from which we can enjoy a thriving prayer life. So what are those categories that Jesus is saying we should pray through? Jesus tells us that we should pray for two things. All right? everyone, almost everyone agrees. The Lord's Prayer, it divides fundamentally into two sections. We pray for God's glory and we pray for our good. That's how they divide, and that's how I'm going to spend the rest of our time this morning. So first, what does it mean to pray for God's glory? Verses 9 and 10. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We start out by praying for God's glory. And there is a real, obviously healthy place to be praying for our good. But Jesus is saying that's not the starting point. We start by praying for God's glory. And we pray for God's glory, it reorients the way that we think about ourselves. Certain things that maybe we would pray, we don't pray. Other things that maybe we'd be meek about, we pray boldly when we begin by praying for God's glory. And to pray for God's glory, according to Jesus, it means two things. It means that we pray that his name would be hallowed and that his kingdom would come. So I'm going to flesh those two things out. What does it mean that God's name should be hallowed? You know, I think if you ask Americans my age and younger, what does hallow mean? I, think, I really think you'd get more Harry Potter references than you would biblical explanations. This word hallow is not an understood term in our society, but before we... We have, before we can address hallow, there's actually a more confusing part of this because we don't understand what it means to have a name. Because in most cultures, and absolutely in Jesus' culture, a name meant something. 
A name was connected in some way to who you are and, and what you do. And in America today, most of us, we just pick names based on things like popularity. You know, some people choose a name because it's popular. Some people choose a name because it's not popular. Or, or maybe we just like the way that it sounds. And Angela and I are guilty of this. When we were naming our kids, we went through our family, our lineage. You know, we wanted to stay within the lineage. But within the lineage, we were focusing on how, you know, how it sounds. And I remember looking at our lineage, Turner, my firstborn, is coming. And my great, 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 great grandfather was named Dougal. It's like, Dougal Davis just doesn't do it for me. I'm so sorry if there's a Dougal here today. Turner Davis, that's what we're going to do but it was how it sounded. I think you could make an argument that most Americans put more meaning into the names of their pets than we do our kids. The idea of a name really, really meaning something is is largely lost in our society, but it's not totally gone. We still have some leftovers from that part of our history because we have phrases like, he has a good name in this town. You know, we all understand that phrase. He has a good name. And when we hear that, we know that person's not talking about how the name sounds. We know they're connecting it to the integrity and the character of the person with that name. I can remember my dad saying to me uh, in some harder years of my growing up, Jim, you're a Davis and Davises don't do this. There was something about being a Davis in my dad's mind that begged more of me than I was putting, out in, putting forth in life. So we still understand that a name means something. I heard a, a pastor this week telling a story about an American who was, who was engaging the Mansai people. I had never heard of the Mansai people. It's an indigenous tribe of people in Siberia. And the American was using the name of this Mansai re- repeatedly as he would talk. Because in America, it can be a form of endearment and flattery to to use your name over and over. And we think we're communicating, I, I know your name, I know you, I value you. And the Mansai interrupted him and he said, stop throwing my name about this way. My name is important to me. We don't hold the importance of names the way that most cultures do and especially Jesus' culture. There's something behind names in Jesus' culture and no name would have had more behind it than God the Father. What you're communicating in the name of God is significant and that is why Jesus is saying, hallowed be your name, revered be your name, honored be your name, lifted up high be your name. God has many names in the Bible. Every name communicates something different or additional about the character of God. But my favorite of all the passages that talk about God's name is when Moses said, okay, I'll go, I'll go back to my people. I'll go back to Pharaoh, but who is it that I should tell them sent me? And what does God say? I am. I, I, I don't think you can communicate more in a name than the verb to be. There is a lot behind the name of God. Augustine, talking about this name, I am, he says, I hear this and I see the depths, but I do not see the bottom. There's so much communicated in the name of God. So much, in fact, that Jews in in Jesus' culture and actually practicing Jews today would, would 
abide by the same practice. They would not even speak the name Yahweh. They wouldn't even write it fully out because they felt like it was dishonoring God to have that level of intimacy, to speak his name. I love how C.S. Lewis in the Chronicles of Narnia, obviously pulling on this exact idea, he talks about what happened to the children the moment they heard the name of Aslan. He writes, at the name of Aslan, each one of the children felt something jump inside. Susan felt as if some delicious smell or some delightful strain of music had just floated by her. And Lucy got the feeling you have when you wake up in the morning and realize that it's the beginning of the holidays or the beginning of summer. The name of God means something. And Jesus said, hallowed be that name. We should pray that God's name would be hallowed in our midst. So what does that look like? What does it look like to pray that God's name would be hallowed, that it would be honored, that it would be revered? Well, I think the obvious answer is the third commandment. Don't take the Lord's name in vain. And we had a sermon that talked about that a few weeks ago. You know, the obvious answer are the kinds of things that come out of our mouth when our, when our sports team is not doing well or when the golf ball goes in a direction that we didn't intend for it to go. But that's not the only way that we can apply this. What does it mean to pray that God's name would be hallowed? Well, I think it, it means praying that God's name would be hallowed in our actions, in what we do, it, especially when people know that we're a Christian, that we represent Christianity, that all of our actions would hallow the name of God. If on your car you have some sort of marking that designates you as a Christian, everywhere you drive affects the name of God. If you've got a bumper sticker that says you're a Christian, I would be praying regularly that my driving would hallow thy name. And on a much more sad note, the past couple weeks have been horrible weeks in the news as we see staggering numbers of cases of sexual abuse by pastors on minors in the church. The Houston Chronicle has has kind of taken front on this. And we have to be able to say as Christians in the strongest possible words that when a man who has the title of elder or pastor uses that influence to do these kinds of things, he is corrupting the name of God in probably the most significant possible way. And those men will be held accountable for their actions. We need to pray that everyone in our midst, everyone who carries the name of Christian, and especially our leaders, would hallow the name of God. And then lastly, do we pray that God's name is hallowed in this worship? There's a group of people who pray every week at 8.30. In one way or another, the, the name of God would be hallowed in this room. What we do here is God-centered worship. This is not self-centered. It is not me-driven. It's not consumer-driven. We come in here to lift the name of God high. We're not coming in here to be entertained. We're not coming in here to lift up the name of Orlando Grace Church, and we're certainly not coming in here to lift up anybody who teaches behind this pulpit. We are coming in here to lift up the name of God. So as a congregation, I think we should pray every Sunday morning, maybe Saturday night, Lord, tomorrow as we worship, would your name be hallowed in our midst?
There was a group of people who went and visited Charles Spurgeon. Many of you know the name Charles Spurgeon, the great British preacher who would have thousands and thousands and thousands of people come here and preach every week. And they said, what do you attribute all this success to? And without saying a word, he he just pulled them and pulled them down into the basement. And down in the boiler room, there were about 100 people praying that God's name would be hallowed in that church. This is a prayer he's commanding us to pray so we can boldly pray that God's name would be hallowed in our lives and in our worship. That's the starting point. Then secondly, still under the umbrella of praying for God's glory, we pray for his kingdom to come. Verse 10, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And I remember the first time I understood what this verse was teaching. It came from my very first seminary professor, Richard Pratt. And he said that heaven, as we think about it now, is a glorified bus stop. Heaven is a bus stop. Because if we die right now, we go to a place that is ultimately coming here. Heaven is coming to earth. God is bringing his glory and his presence and his kingdom and everything that goes with it down here to this earth. And so that changes the way that we think about our future and the things that we pray for. Because that's where the whole biblical narrative is going. And so how do we pray for thy kingdom come? Alistair Begg has a really helpful tool. He says, just think CSC. Think the letters CSC. Conversion, submission, and consummation. Those are the categories of God's kingdom coming here. We pray for conversion. We want people to be converted. At the, God has designed that the way his kingdom comes, it starts with people being drawn into the kingdom, people's minds being opened and hearts being renewed. And he's doing something, I think, really intentional, especially based on ancient Near East culture. In most cultures, even some here today, a king who was in charge of a kingdom would put statues all around his kingdom. And so obviously the greater the kingdom, the more statues there would be, the farther they would be, the more magnificent they would be so that the king's intention was that when people come onto my land and my kingdom, they will immediately know whose kingdom this is. And that's what God's doing with us. He's establishing his kingdom through us as a type of statue that would communicate in real and bold ways something about his kingdom. And some of you have had opportunities, you've lived long enough, you've seen kingdoms fall. And what is the first thing that people do when a kingdom falls? They tear down the statues because to those people who have lived under that king, it means something. It means something significant And whatever it is that those lifeless statues communicate, God wants us to communicate even more as he brings us into his kingdom through conversion. And this is something that the elders of this church are praying significantly for. We're praying that conversions and baptisms would be a regular part of our worship. We're praying that there would be a day that if we went a month or two and there wasn't a single baptism, that would feel really weird. That's what we want. We want to be a type of church that is seeing the kingdom grow specifically through conversion and celebrating it through baptism. So that's C, conversion. Secondly, S, submission. Once we are in the kingdom, we submit to the king. 
And as we submit to the king, we are conformed more into the image of Jesus Christ and the more effective we are at being a type of statue for him. We proclaim something about the kingdom. And there's this, there's this tendency to think that whatever's going on in our submission, it's purely an internal thing. It's purely between us and the Lord and it has no real effect on the surrounding community. And that would be a gross misunderstanding of historic Christianity. There is absolutely a profound impact inwardly and it affects the way that we view everything happening around us. Because the more mature we get, the more made into the image of God, the more we see places that God's name is not hallowed and his kingdom is yet to come. And we are a real part of claiming this kingdom as we live out our lives and our values change and we sacrifice to serve people and serve needs in the way that God wants it to be in his kingdom. Thomas Watson, who probably has the most famous work on the Lord's Prayer, he says it like this. A Christian that is all head but no feet does not walk in the ways of God. A Christian that is all head but no feet does not walk in the ways of God. As we submit to our king, we become more acutely aware of kingdom issues in our midst, of ways that God's name is not hallowed because in the kingdom that is coming, there is no poverty, there is no pain, there is no injustice, there is no racism, and there is no hurting. That's the kingdom we live in and the king we serve. And the more spiritually mature we are, the more we care about those issues. Now, can we fix every kingdom issue before Jesus comes? No, absolutely not. That's not gonna happen this side of Jesus coming back. But it doesn't mean we don't try. It doesn't mean we don't care because we are making a statement in our submission to everyone around us whose kingdom this really is and what king we serve. It won't be perfectly complete until the last C happens. So we have conversion, submission, and then consummation. There is a day when Lord Jesus is coming back and we are to pray that that day would hasten. And I know if you're under a certain age, if you're, if you're particularly young, there is this propensity to think, I want Jesus to come back, but just after I get married, can I get married first? Or maybe just after I have my kids, then I want Jesus coming back. But the longer you live and you feel the hurts in this world, the more it makes sense to pray, Jesus, come. This is not the way that the world should be. And one day he will. He will come back and all the souls of the dead with him and all the bodies of the dead will rise from the land, from the sea, from the ashes, and they will meet in the sky. And all of us who are believers will be called up at the same time and Jesus will come and establish his permanent kingdom here for all of us who believe in him and for those who believe in Jesus Christ. That is going to be the greatest day in the history of our existence. And we should pray for that day. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. And I can't say this. I can't finish talking about praying for God's glory without addressing one reality. As Western 21st century Americans, it is harder for us to do this than most people. 
And here's what I don't want you to hear. Jim hates America. I'm not saying that. I love the United States of America. I think it's one of the biggest blessings that God has for our world. I shudder to think what this world would look like if not for the United States of America. I am thankful for capitalism and all the ways that it has improved our quality of living and has facilitated the word of God going worldwide. But we can't look at the U.S. as the promised land or the new Israel. It's not. We have good things about our country and we have things that we need to be willing to critique. And one of those critiques is that it is the most me-centered, self-oriented society that has ever existed. So how do you think that's going to affect our prayers? It is going to create a culture that is me-centered and self-oriented in the way that we pray. Growing up in this culture, it's like the, the proverbial frog in the pot. You, know, you have the the lukewarm water and you slowly turn up and the frog doesn't even realize it's being affected until it's too late. We have to be able to see the blessings of our culture and be able to critique the ways that our culture pushes against the things that Jesus wants us to do. We pray first for God's glory. I've I've intentionally spent most of my time there. Then after we do this, we absolutely can come to our Father and ask for our good. Look at verse 11, 12, and 13. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from evil. We can't ever think that our prayers don't matter, that the prayers for ourselves don't matter, that God doesn't want to hear and answer prayers for ourselves. He wants to give us what Jesus calls his daily bread which was a unique term, and there has been some argument about what exactly is daily bread. Some people have tried to spiritualize it and say that it's communion or the word of God or the bread of life, Jesus himself. I don't think that fits the the straightforward reading of the text. I think what, what Jesus is saying, your daily bread is your daily physical needs. And all of our daily physical needs, they're epitomized in what? Food. Our greatest need on a daily basis. I want to give you your physical needs. In the same way that God provided daily manna for his people as they wandered the wilderness, he wants to provide for our physical needs here. And if I have a critique for the reformed evangelical world, okay, that's our stream, that's my stream, it's that we don't ask boldly enough and specifically enough. We're really great with thy will be done, but we're not as good with Here's my will. We're less likely to pray for healing. We're less likely to pray for financial security. We're less likely to pray by name for people that we want God to bring out of the kingdom of darkness and into light. But God's saying, Jesus is saying, we can and should ask him for these things and it's okay. God provided the manna every day, but his people still had to go outside and pick it up. There's still something for us to do. Our prayers matter, and he wants us to come. I have a good friend named Caleb Brazier who says, prayer is the sound that dependence makes. You can tell a whole lot about somebody and what they value based on their prayers. So if someone could see your prayers, someone could hear them, what would they, what would they determine you value? They might determine that I really, really value sleeping children. So I pray a lot for that. What is it that people would think and learn about us from the way that we pray? And there's this misconception. 
as I finish. The more we grow in our walk with God, the bigger our prayers get. Okay, I think it's the exact opposite. I think the more we grow in our walk with God, the more we understand who he is as our father, the smaller our prayers get. You know, we start to pray for all the things that a little child would ask his daddy for. We begin to have the kind of intimacy in our relationship with him where we're asking for all kinds of little things. That's what God wants. He wants us to go and to ask, and when we do that, we can go and we can ask for our daily needs. We can ask for the forgiveness of our sin. We can ask for supernatural ability to forgive people who have harmed us. We can ask that he would guard us from temptation and keep us the rest of our days here on earth. Keep us in him. We can and we should ask boldly. And as always, Jesus is not only the way, he's the example. Because when Jesus was on this earth, he was asking God for things. He was praying fervently for things. We see this in Hebrews 5. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. So he's praying that God would save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. How was he heard? He was saved from death, but not maybe in the exact way that Jesus was praying. God hears our prayers and he gives us the answer to our prayer, but it's not always gonna be the exact way that we ask. And in the same way that God heard Jesus because of his reverence, because of his righteousness, he hears us because of Jesus' reverence and Jesus' righteousness. Jesus is the one interceding for us at all times. I don't understand how this works, but he is somehow on a throne that in one moment accesses all aspects of space and time and he can hear everyone's prayers and intercede between us and a holy God forever, every time we ask for something. And this is why we pray in Jesus' name, because we're going to holy God and we're asking on the merits of Jesus Christ, not on our merits. And because we're asking on the merits of Jesus Christ, we can ask boldly. But we can only ask God our Father if we believe in Jesus. There is no way around that. Hebrews 11. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Are you seeking him? And if you are, you are a beloved child by a father who wants you to come and ask. Let's pray. God, I thank you for this opportunity to look at your word. I thank you that you are a good father, that you love us and that you want us to come to you and ask. And I pray that you would give us a mind to come and seek first your glory and then our need. But I pray that we would not ever be bashful about coming to you and asking you for needs that you already know we have. And so we want to lift these needs up. We want your name to be hallowed here. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.